is unstoppable. It's true. And um, again, Jesus said it in Matthew 16, 18, as we saw in that video. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Today's the final uh, installment of our sermon series, Unstoppable, as we continue to look at what it means for the local church, for upcountry church to be an effective, functioning part of the unstoppable, universal church. Okay, so what is required of us here, of this local congregation, to be more than just a nice gathering or a, or a friendly club, right? What are the qualities of a truly unstoppable church? Well, we've covered just a few throughout this sermon series, which included having integrity. Uh, we talked about being intentional, always acting out of compassion, and today we're going to finish up the study by talking about our expectations for the church. Okay, what should our expectations for the church be? What can we expect for the future of Upcountry Church? And I would submit to you that we should have great expectations for this body. In fact, having great expectations for our church, I believe, is a key component to becoming an unstoppable church. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Next week is, of course, Palm Sunday, uh, which occurs the Sunday before Easter. Palm Sunday or, or Passion Sunday is when Christians celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ, the journey to the cross into Jerusalem, the week before his death and resurrection. And then the following Sunday, we celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so please keep these two Sundays coming up in mind, okay? As you encounter folks, as you talk to people over the next uh, week or so, please keep these two services in mind because both of these Sundays are going to be excellent opportunities for unbelievers to hear the gospel story and the reason that our faith is different from every other religion. Do you know because we serve a risen Savior, the one true God who isn't simply this great historical character but he's one who's alive and well and he's ruling and he's reigning from his throne and indwelling the lives of his people. In short, there's no better time, listen, there's no better time than the next two weeks to invite someone to church, okay? And we're going to spell out the gospel story in those two services as plainly as I can. So please consider bringing someone with you who needs to hear the gospel. It's, it's funny because <clears throat> when you're in a big church and your, your attendance numbers fluctuate every week, it does at every church, by, you know, 20%. <laughs> it's hard to notice. When you're in a church this size, you notice. I mean, we literally, we were looking at our attendance records, and we've gone from 81, 82 people on a Sunday to to 55. You know, there's a huge fluctuation each, each week in this church. And that's okay, by the way. That's not a complaint. Life happens, and there are other things going on. So we understand that. But it's hard to predict from one Sunday to the next who will be here. So I just simply want to make the point, uh, please consider inviting people to church over the next two weeks. It's going to be a great time for folks that are unbelievers outside the church to hear the gospel message very clearly, okay? Now then, today... We're going to conclude this series on the Unstoppable Church and talk about expectations for her. When I think about the church, the images that immediately come to my mind are things like community and family. And I think about home and friendship. The church, in fact, is my favorite place. Has been for some time. That means this building when we're meeting here. It means a local restaurant when we're having lunch together. It means Ingalls or Walmart when we're out shopping and I run into you. It means your house or my house 
when we get together outside of church services. It's wherever we are together. You are the church, you see, and you're, you're my favorite place to be, in fact. And because of that, you're always on my mind. You're always in my prayers. You're always on my thoughts. So I ask today, what about you? Do you think about your church, the church, outside of Sunday mornings? Do you, have, do you have dreams? Do you have expectations for your church? I certainly do. I dream big for our church, and I believe that really we should all have big dreams for what God can do, what He will do through us, and what He's going to do in us as Upcountry Church. So how do we do that? How do we dream big? Well, I believe that it starts with having the right expectations. And I can tell you that I have great expectations for this church. I just do. And it's important that our expectations are in line with the truth of the Word of God, what Scripture says about us, and with His voice as He leads us today. Okay? I, I firmly believe that the only two things in this life that will ever change a man or a woman is the Word of God and the voice of God. The Word of God and the voice of God. You know, we were talking about this the other day. God still speaks today. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ. These words are written down in this book. Let them dwell in you richly. It's his instruction. Jesus quoted scripture. 24 different books, uh, roughly 180 times in his life. He used the word when he was confronted by Satan, right, and tempted. The, the written word, he quoted scripture. But if this is all that we ever do, is read the Bible, we can become worshipers of a book. You see, God still speaks today. His voice is still very much alive and well, and we have to be attuned to his voice and his leading and his direction and his guidance in our life, right? We have to be attuned to his voice to have the proper expectations in line with his word. Because just as important as great expectations, the right expectations are, to our future success in ministry, likewise erroneous expectations or false expectations can lead us down the wrong path. I have four older brothers, so I grew up in kind of a big family, five boys, I'm the youngest of five, and we lived in this big farmhouse in Pennsylvania where I grew up, and there was often an argument about what we were going to watch on television when we're all in the room at the same time. And we only had three channels. There wasn't like a lot of choices, but sure enough, somebody wasn't happy. And I remember one particular evening, we're all in the living room watching television, and I wasn't happy about what was on TV, and I was complaining, and I was protesting, and I kept telling my brothers to change, and they just wouldn't, they weren't paying me any attention. So I went into the kitchen where my mother was, which is where my mother always is. She's baking or cooking or cleaning. There's always something going on in the kitchen. And I said, hey, Mom, and I was just a little guy. And she said, what? And I said, can I have the living room? And she looked at me and said, what? And I said, can I have the living room? And she said, you want me to give you the living room? And I said, yeah. She goes, sure, you can have the living room. I don't care. So I walk back into the living room, and I stand in front of the television with my hand on my hips so that none of my brothers can see what's on TV. And I said, everybody, get out. <laughs> and they said, what? I said, get out. They said, what are you talking about? I said, mom just gave me the living room. Now everybody clear out. <laughs> and 
I had this expectation because I had it on good authority that the living room was now mine, that they were going to stand up in single file in orderly fashion and file out of the living room. The problem is their expectations didn't exactly line up with my expectations at that moment which was often the case, and consequently, I learned to run very fast as a small child <laughs> in fear for my life. It's the same with the church, you know. We, we need to have great expectations, but they need to be the right expectations for this body, for this family, for each other, and for, for what God is going to continue to do through us, okay? And we have it on good authority, on the God-breathed scriptures that he's going to do great things in the church, through the church. And so we should expect that and plan and execute ministry and ministry goals pressing ahead to greater works as he guides us and directs us in, his, in Scripture and by his voice, okay? Great expectations. I don't believe we can dream big until our expectations are in line with his word and his voice. However, once our dreams... Our desires, our expectations are in agreement with what the scripture tells us and with how he's leading us. I believe the sky is the limit. There's no limit to how far God will take us and what he will accomplish through us as long as we keep our eyes and our hearts focused on his will. Okay? Let's turn together to 1 John chapter 5 and we'll read verses 13 through 15. 1 John 5, 13 through 15. At the time this was written... Gnosticism was on the rise, which is a false teaching. And John wrote this letter to the church, which had just experienced a split. Okay, so in chapter 2, verse 19, he describes people leaving the church. So the church is experiencing tough times. It's definitely in transition. John is addressing the situation, and he's telling them that if they will increase in faith and obedience and in love, that they can expect great things. Verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that's the church, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence, okay? That word, confidence, in the Greek, in the ancient Greek, is parousia, which means assurance. So he's saying, and this is the assurance that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The key to understanding this passage is the phrase, according to his will. We must set our expectations on the basis of his assurances in the word of God, in the Bible, and in his leading, in his voice in our life. In other words, standing on the promises of God. That's an old song we used to sing. Okay? Our expectations are only as good as His will allows. Did you get that? Our expectations are only as good as His will allows. The great news here is that His will for this church is far beyond anything that we can imagine. It's going to take work, certainly, determination. It's going to mean commitment to get there, and it won't always be easy. But the result is beyond anything we can imagine on our own. How do I know that? Well, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter. It's not a long chapter, and I think it's important that we understand the context of the last verse in the chapter by reading the entire passage, okay? This is our main text 
for today, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the Spirit of God has revealed to Paul that the good news of the gospel is not only intended for the Jews, right, but for all of mankind. Verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. It's a pretty interesting passage. So what we do as the church, in other words, not only has ramifications on the earth in this life, but in the heavenly realm. How's that for an expectation? This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, this is the best part, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul is writing to the church, and if we're paying attention as we read this, we see that he's describing to us some of what we can expect, not only as individual followers of Christ, but also as the church, as long as we're following his will, the Lord's will, okay? So we're going to work back through this passage along with a few others and see what Paul is telling us about expectations. The first thing is, we can expect hardship. That's not very happy. But it's true, we can expect hardship. In the first verse of this passage, in the 13th verse, Paul describes himself as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And he talks about his suffering. You see, hardship and struggle were hallmarks of the early church. It's not what we want to hear, but it's the truth. And we're going to look at this subject in greater depth in a few weeks, the the suffering of the church and what that means for us today. But for now, just know that persecution and hardship were common not only in the early church, but still are in some parts of the world today. So where does hardship come from? First of all, it comes from without. It comes from outside the church. Throughout history, the church has experienced persecution and pressure from outside. Let's read Acts chapter 8, 
uh, verses 1 through 8, quickly. It says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And uh, just as a footnote here about spiritual gifts, miracles and gifts of healing. They almost always occur in scripture as a sign to unbelievers. They're used as a tool for building the church, which we see here in this passage. Could this be a reason that we don't see more miracles in our churches today? Are we seeking miracles and healing within the church for our own benefit, even to the exclusion of those around us who are lost? Would our expectation of miracles be different if our churches were full of lost people every week? Those are just questions for you to think about, and we'll discuss that in the future as well. Okay? Back to the subject at hand. What did the church do when they were scattered? This is awesome. They preached the word all the more. In fact, this scattering brought on by persecution is what led to the fulfillment of the promise in Acts 1.8, that the gospel would go to the end of the earth. So even though hardship may come against the church, God will use that for his purposes and the church can flourish in the midst of persecution. All right, The church worldwide today is still experiencing much persecution from without and probably most of you uh, know about, some of you may be following Pastor Saeed Abedini. I haven't looked at it in about a week, but he's been in Iran, a Christian pastor who's currently imprisoned for his faith in Christ in Iran. There's a lot of effort going on around the world right now to keep him from being executed for being a Christian. Before Pastor Saeed, it was a year or so ago, we were in Alaska, it was Pastor Youssef Nardakani. He was in the same situation in Iran. A Christian pastor imprisoned for his faith in Christ. We don't experience that same kind of overt persecution in the West. But persecution of the church, in my opinion, is coming subtly through increasingly secular public policies and governmental pressure. Still, we're very blessed to be able to worship freely as we do. The point, though, is that hardship for the church often comes from without. Okay, It comes from the forces outside of our walls. Let's move on to something now maybe a little closer to home. Hardship comes from within. All right. We already read in 1 John that the church had experienced this exodus of its members. How many of you have experienced church splits? They're never easy. Lord knows we don't always agree on everything in church, and that's actually quite okay. The important point here is not that hardship may come from within, because it will. It's how we choose to deal with it. All right? Let's read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. This talks about hardship within the church. While you're turning there, I want to say something to you about Bible interpretation, which is uh, called hermeneutics. One of my goals personally in ministry and for this church is not only to be an effective teacher of Scripture, I love that, but I have a great desire to teach others how to study the Bible. 
if we get our Wednesday services, I should say when we get our Wednesday services going, we're going to go through a series on how to study the Bible on your own. It's one thing to teach others what the Scripture says and what it means. It's something different to teach others how to study the Bible for themselves. It's like you know, the difference between giving a man a fish and teaching a man to fish, right? I certainly don't have all the answers, but I've learned a lot of, about hermeneutics over the years in school. And I can tell you that one of the simplest rules that you can apply in your personal study that will always help you to better understand or properly understand a verse or a passage in Scripture is to always read the passage or verse in the context of the larger story or larger passage that it's contained within. Okay? Verse 19 in this passage in Matthew is one of the most misapplied verses in Scripture, at least in my experience in the church world. Verse 19 says, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. I'll tell you that throughout my life, I've heard people quote this verse and use it to justify praying for and believing for all kinds of things. And I've watched them gather with two or three and pray together and agree about whatever the desire is and then get frustrated or disillusioned when God doesn't come through and grant the desire or answer to that prayer. If all that we do is read verse 19, it sounds like as long as two or three of us can get together and agree on anything, God will make that happen. So let's take a closer look at the verse, and particularly those around it, okay? Most Bibles, at least many Bibles, particularly study Bibles, will take a, each parable or theme or subject and block them into separate paragraphs and give them headings. So you can see how the verses fit together. If you have that type of layout in your Bible, you'll see today uh, verses 15 through 20 are, are stuck together as a particular theme. And your Bible may well have a heading over the section, something that says um, dealing with sin in the church, or if your brother sins against you, or uh, discipline in prayer, and so on. Okay? These headings just help us to see how the scriptures fit together when they're grouped together, when verses are grouped together dealing with a particular issue or a theme, okay? In this case, this passage is specifically dealing with church discipline, which is the context for verse 19. So let's start with verse 15. We'll read those five, six verses and go from there. Okay, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. What's the first word in verse 19? Again. That's very important. Why? Because if you say again... In the beginning of a sentence, that means you're repeating something that you just said. What is the again in verse 19 referring to? Let's look at verse 16. But if he does not listen, 
take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. He tells us to go to our brother alone and try and resolve the issue. If it doesn't work, take one or two others with you. What do you have when you take one or two others with you? You have two or three. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. You see, we can't take one or two verses out of this passage and apply them to any situation that we encounter in life. These verses all fit together, and they must be read and understood together. If we're to properly understand how these verses should be applied to us individually and to the church. Verse 19 is referring to church discipline. Okay, which is a subject we don't like to talk about anymore, but we must if we're to honor all that God has said about the church. Furthermore, these verses are a reference back to God's instruction for his people in the Old Testament. This concept of two or three witnesses has always been an important aspect, according to God, of rightly judging a situation. Anytime we're dealing with one another in regard to, to, to discipline within the congregation, within the body. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. 2 Corinthians 13.1 Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. There were two angels at Jesus' tomb testifying that he was not there. Joshua sent two spies out to the land. Moses sent 12 spies, but what? Only two rightly testified. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two to witness. Okay? This is what verse, verses 16 and 19 and 20 are talking about in Matthew 18. Two or three witnesses to rightly testify when someone in the church is out of line and in need of discipline. The absolutely beautiful thing about verse 19 is what it actually is saying. Getting back to the point of the sermon, it says, If someone in the body has gone astray, try to gain your brother back. Verse 15. That means restore him. Okay? So restoration in church discipline is always the goal. After you've tried reasoning with him alone and then with others, get one or two other believing Christians and petition God for this brother. And whatever you ask, it will be done by our Father in heaven. The whole passage is about church discipline. Verse 19 is not about getting a bigger house, a better job, a newer car. It's about restoration and reconciliation within the body. And if this person is absolutely opposed to doing what's right, there's authority to protect the body from false teaching or dissension or whatever else is damaging the body. That's powerful. Okay? And that's... That's what the entire Matthew 18 passage is about, including verse 19. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verse 18. That speaks to the authority and power of believing Christians praying together for a wayward brother or sister in Christ and for the protection of the church. And then if you continue on, verses 21 and 22 say, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? We're still on the same subject. And I forgive him as many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. This is a roadmap for dealing with hardship within the church. We bring loving correction with restoration always as the goal, but if needed, we exercise the proper authority for the protection of the body, okay? 
So hardship may come to the church, but everything that we need to properly deal with those situations is in this book, and it's in his voice as he speaks and, and leads us. Okay? And by the way, God never speaks a word that is contradictory to Scripture, to the Bible. He's not schizophrenic. Okay? If you hear someone tell you, God said to me, and it doesn't line up with his word, you can just chunk that right out the door. Alright? When we expect hardship... When we expect it, we're not taken off guard and thrown off balance when it arrives. Doesn't mean we walk around in fear. Just means we're prepared with his word in us, with his spirit in us. We're prepared. Now here's the really good news. Because of hardship, we can expect to be strengthened, empowered, rooted, and grounded in love. And the scripture says, and filled with the fullness of God. Let's go back to the original text, chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3. We'll read verses 14 through 19. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's knowing something beyond what we can know. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a lot of promise in these verses. As we press on when times are good and when times are tough, we can expect... We can expect to be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a great expectation to have. Sometimes when we encounter hardship, I think we hope for strength and fullness. We pray for strength and fullness. We, we wish for strength and fullness. We cry out for it. Sometimes I think we beg for strength and fullness. But do we ever really expect it? Paul says this is what God does in us, the church. We should have great expectations about what God will do in us as long as we stay the course. Keep the faith. Stay rooted and grounded in love. The point is, don't let your hope fade. Let your expectations soar. That isn't the power of positive thinking, guys. That's the proclamation of the truth of God's word in your life today. I challenge you, Upcountry Church, to begin to allow your expectations for your life and for this church to soar higher and farther than you ever have before. He will not disappoint you. As we labor together here, we should expect a harvest of souls every time we meet. We should expect our bonds of love and commitment to grow stronger every time we're together. We should expect to see this church grow and achieve new levels of effectiveness in ministry in this community and beyond. We should expect to see lives transformed and broken bodies healed, relationships restored, hearts that have grown cold and hard regenerated by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We should expect to see our city changed transformed because the works of God happening in this church and the love and power of Christ emanating from this place in us. It's time we let our expectations soar. Does that resonate with you? Does that strike a chord in every one of us? If all that we ever expect is mediocrity, that is all that we will ever have. 
Did you catch that? If all that we ever expect is mediocrity, that is all that we will ever have. However, when we truly begin to expect God to do what he said he will do through us, as we faithfully follow him, our faith becomes active because we're looking for the outcome. We no longer just state the promises written in the Bible and spoken to his people and then hope and pray that he will follow through on his end. When we begin looking expectantly for him to move on our behalf and move through us and move in our church, our faith is put into action. Psalm 5.3, David says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. That's expectation. The NIV version translates it this way. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. It is imperative that we adjust our expectations to be in line with the promises in his word and his voice. All right? And finally, this is my last point, and I'll hurry through it. We should expect the unexpected. Verses uh, 20 and 21 of our Ephesians text says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Listen, if you've been quoting Matthew 18, 19 incorrectly, you know, where two or three come together and we can ask anything in our name, that's okay. All is forgiven. Why don't you use this verse instead? Okay? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. I love this verse because it tells me that no matter what I think God is capable of doing in me, through me, through the church, that he can still do far more. Far more than I can ask or even think of. God is infinitely more capable, more creative, more willing, more giving, more generous than we can even imagine. Having great expectations means expecting God to do what he says he's going to do with the church, with this church. According to this, he can do things beyond what we can even imagine. We have to begin believing what his word says about us and about him. We have to speak his promises over our lives and over this church. That sounds nice, but why is this significant? Speaking the promises of God over us, over his church, why is that really significant? I'll tell you why. Because when we speak his promises, our words are in agreement with his words. That's a powerful combination. Okay? When our words line up in agreement with his words, that's a powerful thing. A.W. Tozer once said, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. You see, I'm not sure we always believe that God is who he says he is. I'm not sure that we always believe that he will do what he said he will do. In fact, I'm not sure I've always believed it, to be completely honest. When we keep our expectations low because of fear of disappointment, which is what we're doing, we say, Lord, I don't really believe your promises. I know your word says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, 1 John 5.14. But this mountain is too high. This obstacle is too great. This stronghold of my life is too strong. 
No, it is not. Did I wake you up? It is not for God. For nothing will be impossible with God. Luke 137. Look, I think it's time that we raise our level of expectation. I think it's time we had great expectations for this church and for our lives and for our families and for our friends and for this city. I think if we begin to have great expectations, we'll begin to see even greater things happen because he's able to do what? far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. See, it's not even there's something out here floating around and if it comes to me, if it hits me, if it happens, if this explosion occurs, if there's a bush that lights on fire, there'll be these great things that happen in my life that I can't expect far beyond. No, far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to what? The power at work within us. It's already there. The Spirit of God dwells inside of us. And He can do far more than we can imagine through the Spirit in our lives already. Does that resonate with you? I hope so. I hope it resonates with you for yourselves and for this church. So if you're willing to raise your level of expectation... If you're willing to do that for yourself, if you're willing to raise your level of expectation for this church, I want to ask you to stand with me today as we close.